Yeah, I have never had a newborn dog. So I'm like, wow, this is a lot of pee. It's a lot of paper towels. It, it, and like the sharp little puppy teeth. Like she. They'll you know, start like, falling out soon. Yeah. I hope so. My God. <laughs> <laughs> Puppies are so hard. They're so hard. So if anyone else is training a puppy, I really feel you. I cannot wait until like the end of the year when this is like a little bit easier yeah and i think i think like you're getting um so much of this out of the way while the weather is still at least decent which Mm -hmm. is great like if you were in like january that's terrible in baltimore someone the other day said oh it was a customer i was talking to the puppy about the puppy to a customer and she was like i got a christmas puppy let me tell you worst thing you could ever do to a person especially like a woman because women typically in the household take care of the the animals (laughs) and you're the one out there at 5 a.m in the freezing cold (laughs) you know like being like come on pee yeah here's your treat mary was a february get (laughs) oh we're idiotic we were idiotic so 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 stupid we were not in a rush i don't know why we did that (laughs) but But anyways we're not here to talk about that. No. We're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have a nuance. And in this incredible request season, we're going to get a lot of nuance. <laughs> yes, we are. These are Some of the women are obscure. <laughs> and harder to find. And that's yeah. why we like your request. Thank it you is. so much. Uh, let me tell you, it pushes my uh kind of like scope of what we're doing yeah you know which is really fun to kind of explore um but yeah but also please keep in mind that we're drinking the whole time oh and we are not historians no (sighs) no 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 every bit of my research this week came from wikipedia (laughs) yeah i mine came a lot from wikipedia and then i actually had to listen to one of those lectures lectures. because i was like there's no way this is all academia (laughs) (laughs) i worked really hard to listen to that thank you for putting it out into the world because otherwise i would have been a misguided fool for this research but first we have to do something in particular we gotta help you we have to help you out because you're busy so busy um you are putting up those fake cobwebs all over your house oh my gosh which i just saw a thing i was like don't do that the birds the cats too yeah the cats my cat eats them all and they like fall all over the house do whatever you want i do it the day of the halloween party yeah there we go uh but yeah so you're putting up fake cobwebs you're busy. You have it all over your hands. You can't stop. Look up what these women look like no. on your phone. So while we're telling you their story, we want you to have a picture in your mind. So we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Ellie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing Yuri Kachiyama. And Yuri is a thin Japanese woman with like the, the cutest cat eyeglasses mm. you ever did see in your life. She wears her hair short and it's held off her face by a headscarf. Like okay. a, the most famous picture of her. Um, she's speaking on a microphone, cute cat eyeglasses, adorable headscarf. In her older years, she had a perm and this cute gray curls like in her hair. Um, she had a very defined jaw and a long, thin neck and absolutely always looks like she has something important to Ooh, say. Okay. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so this week I am doing two women. Uh-huh. I am doing Eleanor Abbott 
and Rose O'Neill. And I also want to make this clear. Eleanor is spelled E-L-E-N-O-R-E. Not the traditional spelling. Like iron ore. Yes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Eleanor. Um, Maybe her dad was into the metal work. I think so. Uh, So Eleanor is a white woman from the Northeast. We have one picture of her when she was young. She has kind of wispy bangs and a sort of downtrodden look on her face. Like her eyes are downcast. She has a bit of a pout. Um, She has like this collared striped shirt with a pussy bow on the front. And in my mind, in this picture, for some reason, I'm like, that is what Alice in Wonderland would have looked like if she grew up. Like, who? Oh. Like, I don't know why Alice in Wonderland is what comes to mind when I see that picture of her. Uh, but in her older years, she stares directly into the camera with a more confident look and a fashionable hat on. Uh, and Rose O'Neill, we have a few more pictures of. And she is another white woman, uh, American, who has a very, like, fresh and youthful face. She kind of reminded me of Evelyn Nesbitt in her photos. <laughs> uh, she has her hair up, but it's a little wild. And there's a very famous photo with her hair down, which would have been very wild and bohemian for the time, which really suits her personality. So that is what these women look like. They're, it's funny because they're both from the same exact time period, late 1800s, early 1900s, the Gibson girl era. But they were like a Gibson girl with a twist. Like they looked really interesting because these are two very interesting ladies. Oh, I'm so <laughs> excited to learn about them. Okay. Let, do we want to talk about what we're drinking and then who requested these ladies? Yes. Um, so my drink is called New Women. And this drink I'm going to toast to Rebecca Denauer who requested these ladies. Wonderful. So cheers to Rebecca. This drink is based on a 1920s cocktail called Snorky's Kiss. <laughs> it is gin, creme de cassis, orange liqueur, Angostura bitters, and it, you top the whole thing off with beer. <laughs> mm, cheers. Mmm. <laughs> Weird. I like it. You do? Okay, good. I like it a lot. It's interesting. Hmm. I like a beer cocktail. Mm-hmm. I just like them. I do too. Also, I will say, in regards to Rebecca Denauer, she's been a patron for a very long mm. time. Um, and I believe, not to put you on blast, I believe she lives in Illinois. Really? Or Chicago, or that's where she was from. Because when me and the fam went to Chicago for last spring break, she on Instagram, wait, Chicago, Cleveland. She's from oh. Cleveland. Cleveland, Ohio. She's from Ohio. She was like, oh, you and the fam are hitting like all the right spots. Like, and like gave me some suggestions online. I was like, that is so nice. This is why I urge you guys to follow me on my personal Instagram (laughs) instead of just the Her Story on the Rocks one. I want your advice. I'm a a little traveler, baby. I love that. Follow Allie. What's your handle? Allie G. Wood. Allie G. Wood. But because I'm a teacher, you have to ask, you have to request Uh me. So then I tell her, just send me a message that says I'm so-and-so from Her Story on the Rocks. I think mine's public now. Um, and it's cool for cats. We love keys. Um, if you want to see pictures of Charlie, cool for cats with a double K. <laughs> now that I have this puppy, I'm posting more than I have in the past ten years. I think it's fascinating. It's unbelievable. It's, it's, it's like having a new baby, I'm or like, so or cute. going to a really nice restaurant and posting your plate of food. <laughs> okay, so my request um, for my person it, for Yuri is from Artemis. Artemis. So cheers to Artemis, who sent us a very long list of women of color to cover. From back when we, I think it was from when we said initially, like, we were struggling to find 
people that represented all different groups. Yeah. So Artemis, thank you so much. We have plenty more of Artemis to come. And actually, Rebecca, Re Rebecca requests a lot, too. So. Yeah. We'll be back with both of these people. Thanks. Later on. Um, but anyways, to the story. I know nothing about these women, so Perfect. just go right ahead. All right. <laughs> Wait, you said they're illustrators. They're both illustrators. So pen to yes. paper, baby. Pen to paper. Um, so, and I do want, actually, I should bring up some of their illustrations. <laughs> Sorry, I need to get off of my Google search of Lori and Chad Daybell. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Is this going to be a picture, one that has pictures along with it? I love that. Yes. Because you really have to, like, okay. So I have the first one up. Let me get the second one up. Okay. So now that my pictures are ready, let's get into the story. Okay. Um, I got a lot of this from Wikipedia um, because there was one, like, <laughs> historic article on Eleanor that was just, like, a genealogy. And it was, like, really boring information about, like, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. Mm -hmm. I love that. And Very Abraham and Isaac. In Maine. Um, <laughs> so I did not really incorporate much of that. So Eleanor Plasted was born in Lincoln, Maine in 1875. You don't hear a lot about Lincoln, Maine. No, you don't. You hear a lot about Lincoln, Nebraska. That's the one. But not Maine. So her father was Thomas M. Plasted and her mother was Emma Henrys. And that is all we know about her early life. Nice. <laughs> Eleanor studied art at a few different schools the philadelphia school of design for women pennsylvania academy of fine arts and the academy des beaux arts in paris france so wait she went through all that trouble growing up in maine just to go to pennsylvania uh -huh. and then france uh -huh. that's pretty cool <laughs> now you might be thinking hey we just talked about that art academy i thought they didn't allow women and yes that is until 1897 which was just in time for last week's subject julia morgan and this week's subject, Eleanor. So they were both there. Yeah. Separate years? Uh, I do not know when she went. Oh, but man. I wish it overlapped. It must have been, like, at the exact same time, though. Maybe they're friends. I would love it if they well, were Well, one's friends. an architect, though, right? That's yeah, different schooling. They were in different uh, majors. Because <laughs> um, here's the thing. As forward-thinking as Paris was historically, women were excluded from the Paris art scene that was so famous. They were also excluded from politics. I, I'm sure we have mentioned it here before, but I could not believe that women did not get the right to vote in Paris until 1945. I also like That's I don't bananas like, to, to me, me. I don't understand th this whole Paris thing. Like they were really chill about like slavery. Like I mean, Thomas Jefferson is over there, and he couldn't like enslave the slaves he brought with him. Right. Like, they really got it down. It's like the Quakers. They, they knew what they were doing some of the time. Some of the time, but not all the time. So it's like racial relations. They were very forward-thinking, as far as we can tell from our research here. Um, but, yeah, with women, it was like they were very behind. I think maybe, like, the quality of life was pretty good for women. So, like, maybe they're like, you don't need more rights. Like, what are you doing? Right. Everything's great here. It's Paris. <laughs> but it wasn't all great. Because even the salons, or saloons as we like to call them, saloon only, <laughs> very selective when it came to the women who were allowed to participate. Um, so much so that a new Union des Femmes Peintres et Sculpteurs, oh, which is the Union of Female Painters and Sculptors, formed a separate salon specifically for women in 1881. And it wasn't just the academy or the salons. Women were also just not even allowed in the artsy, like, cafes where very important men would discuss very important art. They were left out of literally every space, which is so wild to me. 
it's wild to me not only because it's like very weird because I feel like art is now seen as more like women centric but even even though a lot of the most famous artists are male but because the the female body is so often the subject of art yes so it's like why are we leaving out the ladies who knows um, so as we said last week, this group of women in this union fought for years for women's rights in the art world, which made it possible for women to begin attending and not just, you know, I always want to call it subletting classes, but it's not. It's what is it called? Auditing. Auditing classes. <laughs> Did the same exact thing last week. Um, so rather than just auditing classes, like actually getting degrees so they can get paid for their work. This group of women really did this. Um, so they made it so that these women could attend this school. So she goes to Beaux Arts, obviously before the age of 30, um, because you you're know, not allowed after no 30. No old ladies. Um, and she even had her work displayed there, which was a really high honor. So she moves back to Philadelphia. She's mentored by one of her teachers from Drexel. Shout out to Drexel. Almost went there. Howard Pyle. She's painting landscapes and portraits and even gets some gigs as scenery designer for local theaters. Her most famous work was for the Hedgerow Theater's production of Emperor Jones, which I thought was really cool. I never thought about the fact that, like, yeah, they would need someone to just, like, paint those gorgeous backdrops for these, like, theater pieces. Um, But her best and most famous work was her illustrations. She produced illustrations for Harper's Magazine, the Saturday Evening Post, Scribner's Magazine, but her real talent lay in children's book illustrations. This is also another thing I was thinking about while I was reading, researching these women, was I was like, oh, yeah, like, there really wasn't photographs in journals. So, like, if you wanted to advertise shoes, you had to give the shoes to an illustrator and have them, like, draw the shoes on a person to advertise right. them. Right. <laughs> um, so anyways, she created illustrations for books such as Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, Johann David Weiss's Swiss Family Robinson, Louisa May Alcott's Old Fashioned Girl, and most famously, a collection of the Grimm's fairy tales. Ooh, good. I'm going to like this. I want to see her rumble still skin. Okay. So here are her illustrations. Um, oh, she nice. had this very particular style that was whimsical yet gothic, which is perfect for Grimm's. It was very Art Deco. The figures are willowy, but also kind of flat, and the colors are vibrant, and everything is like just, it's just beautiful. This is a style that I feel like I've seen a lot before. Yes, from I heard. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I very much associate with like, like, fairy tale books that I had as a kid. Right. You know, it's very Sleeping Beauty, very like, That's the first thing I thought. It looks like Mm -hmm. Aurora. Yeah. But I just, I think the thing I like about it the most is that it takes illustrations in children's books seriously. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I think it's easy. I think right now we're in a weird space with children's books where they're very simple. And, and cartoony almost. Cartoony, yeah. Kind of like how we are with, um, you know, all the children's movies are very, you know, they all look the same. Right. And I don't love that. We're, I think we're, I, I, I harp on about this all the time, but I think we're missing out on like this speciality of hand-drawn cartoons and movies. Like I always loved when I was a kid that like 101 Dalmatians doesn't look like 
Cinderella or and Jungle Cinderella Book. doesn't look like Jungle Book and this doesn't look like, you know, Sleeping Beauty. Like there were artistic flares that got to exist and I worry that that's going away in all of children's media. Well, yeah, because it's the the way in which like if you've ever seen somebody on social media, I'll be like, here's a picture of a person. I'm going to draw that person as a Simpsons character. I'm going to draw that person as a Family Guy character, as somebody from Hey Arnold, as somebody from Recess. And you can see the distinct style. Yes. And it's like now that we have, I mean, I call it like the Pixar effect, Mm -hmm. which not all Pixar movies look the same, but it's that very computerized imaging. Yes. The big eyes, the like the rounded features, big round heads. Right. Even whether it's a car or a fish or a ladybug, like Mm -hmm. they all look kind of the same. Right. Like someone posed this question recently at a party we were at. Who would win in a fight? Hey, Hey Arnold kids versus recess kids. Recess. Clearly. Um, (laughs) So funny. I go, Hey Arnold. I know. I'm a recess girl. Kids. So, (laughs) but I was also thinking about like, yeah, the animation is different. They all had their own distinct styles. And I don't know. I just feel like that's kind of lacking now. So that's my rant. One famous person, Nigel Wolf, maybe Nagel Wolf, who knows? His, I'm sorry. Evan Nagel Nigel Wolf. <laughs> I keep reading his name is, I keep reading it as even Nagel Wolf. <laughs> his name is Evan. With an E? With an E. That's a weird way to spell Evan. That's on him. What? How would you spell Evan? Evan is spelled E V A N. Oh, yeah, no, that's how his name is spelled. Oh, you're just, I just reading keep, it I just like keep that. reading it as I say. Even Nagel Wolf. So you're the problem. I am the problem. <laughs> it's me. Um, he once said about her, Eleanor Abbott loves her fairy tales, and no child who receives such a book will be disappointed. Eleanor Abbott is not on the surface a clever artist. Her active, vigorous, yet idealist mind is brought into subjection and guides the long, sensitive fingers that hold the watercolor brush. I feel like there was a little bit of an insult in the middle there. That's a backhanded compliment. Uh, She's on the surface. She's not really a clever artist. She just I don't hold- even know what that means. Yeah, she's not like that good on the surface, but but <laughs> you look under the surface. She's However, fantastic. she's great at holding a watercolor brush. <laughs> Eleanor was a member of the Philadelphia Water Watercolor Club, Philadelphia's Plastic Club, which was an organization established by women artists to promote art for art's sake. Its members included Jesse Wilcox Smith, Violet Oakley, and Elizabeth Shippen Green. Pause. Jesse Wilcox Smith is my favorite artist. Really? I love her. Now I have to look her up. I'll look up pictures. I'll look okay, up pictures you look up pictures. You go. I need you to understand um, how much I love her. And like the women in Paris, American female artists were banding together because they wanted respect. Because no matter how good their work was, it was always seen as inferior because it was done by a woman. So they started to forge their own art societies and professional groups. And this was all a part of the growing feminist movement called the new woman. So any of these women that you Google, there is a little blurb in their Wikipedia page about the idea of the new woman, which is what the cocktail is named after. So in 1894, Irish writer Sarah Grand used the term new woman in an influential article to refer to independent women seeking radical change. Independence was not simply a matter of the mind. It also involved physical changes in activity and dress, like bicycling so they could get places and then wearing clothes that would allow them to bicycle and get places. <laughs> it was what? Oh, what? 
was the idea of like, okay, like we need to lit like our physical state is holding us back at the moment. Like, right. like we talk about all the time, like they're like, we can't swim. <laughs> I don't want to die. <laughs> I don't want to die on a simple rowboat crash. Like, <laughs> you know, so this was a really big topic of conversation was like women's mobility. <laughs> um, so this new woman was entering many fields such as higher education, literature, and of course the art scene. These women wanted to be increasingly vocal and confident in their work and their careers. And one of the benefits of having more female illustrators appearing in magazines was they were also reflecting how the new woman wanted to be represented in the media. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, about 88% of subscribers of 11,000 magazines and periodicals were women. And as women entered the artist community, publishers hired women to create illustrations that would depict the world through a woman's perspective. Which I was like, that makes total sense. Like, I don't know where it went from like women being the artistic force behind advertisements to then men being back at the artistic force. It's weird that like advertising in magazines started out as kind of a woman's game because they were the illustrators behind it. Isn't that fascinating? Well, and I mean, we've talked a lot on the show about the different times when they realize that women have all the buying power and women mm. this and women that. I, like, women illustrating from a woman's perspective is something I didn't think about before just because, like, when I looked up Jessie Wilcox-Smith, who I just mentioned is, like, my favorite, she mostly draws little girls being little girls. Oh, like, mm -hmm. they're holding their dress up and like digging in the sand mm -hmm. or like sitting in my favorite picture, which didn't come up, which I'll have to look up separately is a little girl sitting in geography class. There's a big map behind her and she just has her pencil in her mouth and her books open. And she's just like staring straight ahead. Like what the <laughs> fuck is happening? And I just find them. So like, this is what it felt like to be a girl, which I don't think every man could draw. Yeah, no, I don't think so. And also, I wonder if men artists at the time kind of looked down on advertisements. I don't know if this is true. This is me speculating. I'm sure. <gasps> These oh are Jesse Wilcox Smith. I love this. Yeah. It's just so beautiful. It's very just oh. like what a little kid would do, even yeah. if you're a little girl. It really is. Oh, I got to find the I geography one to show you. But no, I think you're right. Like, yeah. Well, and I wonder if they kind of thought, like, that's beneath me. Like, I'm a serious artist. Mm. I don't peddle my wares. I don't know. That's just my opinion. Charles yeah, Vincent, maybe they felt let like me know was, if I'm right or maybe wrong. Maybe it was, like, selling out, they thought? Maybe. I don't know. Here she is. Oh. <laughs> I love that. I want just the original of that. Mm -hmm. Whoever has millions of dollars, go for it. Um... So Eleanor Abbott might not be a household name and she may have a tiny Wikipedia page with almost no information, but you would definitely recognize some of her illustrations because she was a really sought after artist and she was paid for her work. She made a really good living off of her illustrations. Um, and this is such a weird little factoid, but in 1928, she even, this is even not Evan, co-founded the Rose Valley Swimming Pool. And this is important because this swimming pool was built on land that she donated, that she bought with funds from her selling 
her artwork. That's amazing. I know. That's why it's like, okay, she founded a pool. And it's like, no, no, no. She bought the land and then helped co-found the pool. Mm. Like, with land that she bought with her own fucking money. As far as Eleanor's personal life goes, she married lawyer and artist C. Yarnall Abbott in 1898. And after 1911, they settled down in the town of Rose Valley, Pennsylvania. Her husband designed the family house with a studio for Eleanor and himself. And their daughter, Marjorie, was born in 1907. Marjorie with a J or a G? J. Damn. They also adopted, uh, at some point, her aunt's two daughters when she died, so Sonia and Eleanor, and then Eleanor died sometime in 1935. And since that is all there was on Eleanor, I thought we would do a double feature this week. Um, Because one of the other really cool new women of this era was a woman named Rose O'Neill. So she was born on June 25th, 1874 in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, the daughter of William Patrick, an Irish immigrant, and Alice Mimi Smith. (laughs) I love a Mimi. Uh, She had two younger sisters, Lee and Kalista, and three younger brothers, Hugh, James, and Clarence. The family moved to rural Nebraska. Also funny. <laughs> Lincoln, Nebraska? <laughs> nah. Oh, man. Uh, they moved there when Rose was young. Yeah, and she started in Pennsylvania and moved yes, to Nebraska. One started in Maine and moved to Pennsylvania. It's a whole thing with these it is women. A whole thing. <laughs> I told you, they're mobile. <laughs> they can go where they want. And from early childhood, Rose expressed significant interest in the arts, immersing herself in drawing, painting, and sculpture. She attended the Sacred Heart Convent School in Omaha, and at 13, she entered a children's drawing competition sponsored by the Omaha Herald, and she won first prize for her drawing titled Temptation Leading to an Abyss. Whoa, that is spicy. How old? 13. What is this a picture of? I could not find it to save my life. I searched. Classic dramatic art kid. So within two (laughs) years, Rose was providing illustrations for the local Omaha publications. The Excelsior, The Great Divide, and other periodicals. So she is 15 and a paid professional artist. Of course she is, because (gasps) teenage girls are human beings. They can run the world. I love it. This income helped support her family, which um, which was great because her father was struggling. He was a bookseller, and apparently the books were not flying off the shelf in Nebraska. So to market her skills to a broader audience, Rose moved to New York in 1893 when she was 19. And, of course, she made a pit stop in Chicago to see what else but the, the World's, World's Fair. Fair. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She was there, she was there. with Maud. <sighs> Oh, with everyone. And wait. <laughs> Helen Keller was there. Aunt Jemima was there. Yes. Um, the As we said, Maud Wagner. Uh-huh. Um, perfect voting woman. Susan B. Anthony uh, was there. Uh-huh, Frederick uh-huh. Douglass was there. Mm-hmm. Everybody we've talked about. Everybody. So... You she know, goes Frederick Douglass, famous yes, woman from history. Woman. <laughs> <laughs> so she's in New York, and oddly enough, a group of nuns is helping her out by sending her artwork to as many publishers as they could. I kind of love this. I don't know if it's because she went to a convent school, so they were like, we'll put you in with the nuns there. Um, and it works. She starts selling some of her work, and on September 19th, 1896, in an issue of Truth Magazine, she had a four-panel comic strip published making her the first American woman to publish a comic strip. Ever? Ever. That's so Isn't cool. That cool? What? 
I know. In Truth Magazine. Truth Magazine. There it is. And soon after, she was asked to join an American humor magazine named Puck. I, I like thought to you think were going to say Mad. Is, no, <laughs> but it's kind of like Mad Magazine. Uh, she was the only woman on staff. So her career is going well. And also in 1896, she married a man that she had been kind of courting long distance for a few years. He was back home. His name was Bray Latham. But this marriage didn't last long because she soon discovered that he was a gambling playboy who had spent most of her paychecks on himself and his own bad habits. I don't appreciate that. No. So in 1901, she finally divorced him. But the annoying thing is that he also died that year. So a lot of things listed her as a widow. And she goes, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, I am a divorcee. (laughs) I left him. (laughs) So while all that's going on, also in late 1901, she started getting some anonymous letters and gifts in the mail. Ooh. She soon finds out that they are coming from Harry Leon Wilson, who is a writer and assistant editor at Puck, who I guess had been holding a candle for her for a while, but she was married. So once she was single, they started dating and were married in 1902. So he like slid into her DMs. Yes. He like was writing her letters uh-huh. before doing this in person. Yes. While she was, like, getting her divorce. So he's like, I know it's like he was very gentlemanly about it, as far as I know. He, like, (gasps) followed the paperwork. Mm Mm-hmm. So they had a better marriage than her first, and she even illustrated his novels. One of Wilson's later novels, Ruggles of Red Gap, this is just a weird aside, became popular and was turned first into a silent movie, then into a talkie, and then into a major motion picture starring Lucille Ball and Bob Hope. He's a regular old Stephanie Isn't that Meyer. Crazy. <laughs> he really did it for himself. Yeah, so he's writing books. And then she's like, I could write books. So in 1904, she illustrates her own very first novel called The Loves of Edwy. So she wrote and illustrated that book. I love when you like look at your husband's job and you're like, I could really do I that. I could do that. I could do that. I could do that. <laughs> Uh, but the couple went their separate ways. Because to be clear, I do not feel that way about my husband's job. <sighs> nope. Uh, oh, no. Couldn't do it. Uh, but they went their separate ways in 1907. The next year, Rose decided, she goes, you know what? I want to do more than just these little individual illustrations. She goes, I want to create my own original characters that would be a part of an ongoing series. And this led to the creation of the whimsical Cupid characters, for which she became the most well-known. So you would recognize these in an instant. Oh, yes. They are the cute little round babies with wispy blonde hair, diapers, wings. And the name Cupid obviously is based off of Cupid, which well, they were based off of. I've always loved the vote for women's I ones. know. <laughs> she was a hardcore sufferer. Like, she was very into women's she rights. She was like, we are absolutely going to be voting. Yes. I love the idea of these babies. Angel being, babies want you to vote you know for women. It's like, it's like the movie Boss Baby. Like, the baby yes. is cognizant. Or like Stewie from Family Guy. Like, that's a funny joke. Mm-hmm. I get it. Well, you know, what is it? Truth speaks from the mouth of babes. Whatever that Bible verse is. I don't even think that is a Bible verse. It might be. From the mouths of babes. Are you sure it's not Bible fan fiction like the seven deadly sins? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Um, So anyways, she described them as, quote, a sort of little round fairy whose one idea is to teach people to be merry and kind at the same time. Oh, the, the ghost of Christmas baby. <laughs> mm-hmm. According to Rose, she became obsessed with the idea of the cher- cherubic, 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 yes, 
the cherubs <laughs> the cherubic characters have you ever point. been to church katie no obviously <laughs> not uh that she had dreams about them she said i thought about the cupies so much that i had a dream about them where they were all doing acrobatic pranks on the coverlet of my bed mm. one even sat in my hand the cupie characters made their debut in comic strip form in 1909 in an issue of ladies home journal further publications of the cupie comics and women's home companion and good housekeeping helped the cartoon grow rapidly popular uh she was becoming more and more well known which led to her work drawing advertisements for jello and more illustrations for harper's and life magazines <laughs> i love that she did jello ads well that's the jello so ads good. i've seen are cute it's like a little girl mm-hmm. right that's kind of like standing there so. like but it is mouth of babes is the bible verse by the oh, way perfect. psalms 8 2 so anybody who's out there who's mad at me about the bible excellent. thing <laughs> it is a bible verse excellent what do you know what the bible verse actually like what does it say verbatim uh psalms 8 2 says <laughs> The first reading is from God ordains strength out of the mouth of babes and sucklings. Oh, okay. I feel like out of the mouths of babes is like taken out there and put with a different quote. Sure. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> in 1913, is that, is that King James version? <laughs> KJV? King James verse. <laughs> Who wrote his own version of the Bible. Anyways, in 1913, German doll manufacturer Kessner & Co. began making Cupid dolls. The dolls were immediately successful, and more companies were licensed to produce them in order to meet demand. What a Beatrix Potter. Mm-hmm. So she also authored many children's books based on the Cupies and what adventures they might get up to. And, of course, she illustrated them all herself. Now, you might hear Cupie and think, hey, that's a mayonnaise. And that's because I don't think that. It, well, it is. <laughs> did you know that? I did. This yes. research? I, I don't know. know. I don't that. know all my mayonnaise. I know Hellman's. So Cupie is a Japanese mayonnaise. Oh, <laughs> and they did license the Cupie character no from way. the dolls. I love to that. Be their mayonnaise ambassador, <laughs> and then there was a lawsuit about it. Absolutely, I could. I can't get into the Cupie mayonnaise lawsuit but just, what you need to know just to know that it exists <laughs> is important to know that it exists. <laughs> and i need you to know this because the success of the cupies amassed for a fortune of 1.4 million dollars in then money no way i can't even imagine how much that the was japanese now. had to give her 1.4 million no they the japanese mayonnaise? later on oh. so like they bought the rights to the doll figure I think after she died. So this is like, she didn't even have the Japanese mayonnaise money at this point. Damn. This is all just normal money. Normal Cupie baby money. No mayonnaise. Was her biological clock ticking? (laughs) What is happening with these dreams with babies on her hands? So after, at the height of the Cupie success, Rose O'Neill, I need everyone to know this was the highest paid female illustrator in the world. Shut up. You know what this reminds me of? You know, 
obviously you know angela from the office with those baby (laughs) and getty yeah the pictures of the babies doing the grown-up things like (laughs) the jazz band why are they so famous is ann getty the name of that artist i'm I'm like 99 percent sure that ann getty is the person that was like yes i'm gonna put a baby in a cabbage patch (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna have it being birthed out of a lily but what's funny is she the famous jazz baby photo yeah. they, i think they had to take themselves because it didn't exist <laughs> and getty did not do that <laughs> she was more into like the, the vegetable sleeping, right? fruit yeah, situation they're sleeping inside of a flower why was that a thing i people have them framed Can in I their ask homes you a question yeah did you ever get newborn portraits for your kids no okay they're really expensive did you so, know that they take some in the hospital really they offer like the a photographer comes in a pastor comes in like and they took some for me in the hospital but just so i had a picture i never went and had like oh okay real ones say i have a picture of caroline like laying on a blanket like (laughs) babies look like gremlins but before they're like three weeks old yeah they look insane yeah they just got squeezed out of the vag If you had a vaginal birth. Otherwise, they just pulled them right out. They just yeah. cut you open and pulled them out. They got the soft spot. You know, you don't want to put your finger in there. Caroline was a fucking adorable baby. <laughs> she was. Eliza looked like a gremlin. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, they took pictures in the hospital and that's it. Okay. Because I, we I, didn't I, have the money. My sister-in-law, she on the other side, my sister-in-law-in-law, uh, she paid for baby photography for her first one. And then she was like... <laughs> It was expensive. She was like, I also feel like I could do this. And then she just did it. And look at, not that you baby photographer, like, yes, you are very important and do valuable work. We need you. We need you. But also I could just do that in my living room. I <laughs> You're but not devalidating. Listen. No, I'm not deep because they have very like the, the picture clarity, it, the setup, the backgrounds, it's the, the props. Soft touch. Yeah, you're good at it. But damn. It's so expensive. So expensive. <laughs> and you deserve every penny because you're handling a, I don't even know what they a are. A living child. A living child. Anyways, Wait, sorry. You should get a newborn portrait done with your puppy. <laughs> puppy <laughs> do a whole photo shoot. Oh my God. That guy in the NFL, like, <laughs> just this past week, he s- caught his first touchdown pass after being in the NFL for his for three years so him and his wife had a photo shoot done with the ball <laughs> like, and he, he, okay that's the kind of football i can get behind he got he put flowers in his hair <laughs> holding the baby who is this i gotta find a picture swaddled in a blanket he's holding this football <laughs> also guys i need you to know that i did an inspection recently for one of the ravens players of course you did because you're a queen and every time he does something on the field now i go <laughs> your basement <laughs> that's upsetting honestly i don't i'm not watching football with you anymore <laughs> he goes can you stop that stop saying you've been in his basement i mean you have well, i have <laughs> he might not have been there and the other part it's a lovely house he bought i'm not gonna tell you who it is maybe in <laughs> patreon okay anyways me and me and i Highest paid female illustrator in the world. She was a well-known bohemian figure in artsy New York circles and became equally famous for her dedication to women's rights. Obviously, we talked earlier, she loves putting little babies on the picket front with her votes it's for women's It's so signs. funny. And in a funny turn of events, she was the inspiration for a song called 
Rows of Washington Square, which was then turned into a musical of the same name. But the story of the musical was based on the life of HOTR alum Fanny Bryce. Oh, isn't that weird? Fan? Rose continued working, even at her wealthiest, exploring many different types of art. She learned sculpture at the hands of Auguste Rodin, I who hope. sculpted the thinker. That blows my mind. The thinker. He's like, let me be under your tutelage. And he said, sure. I've never said tutelage in a sentence. <laughs> and she ended up having several exhibitions of sculptures and paintings in Paris and the U.S. These works were more experimental in nature and largely influenced by dreams and mythology. But the 30s and 40s were not as kind to Rose as the Roaring Twenties were. Oh, no. The Cupid doll went out of fashion, and photography had placed illustration in magazines and advertisements, so her general field of work was simply not in demand anymore. Rose had been making a lot of money for a long time, but unfortunately she had also been taking care of a lot of people, such as her family and friends, or as the Wikipedia page said, hangers-ons <laughs> so by the 40s she was dead broke and back on her family's estate that's actually she had like millions millions she was like doing it what'd she spend it on these people like she like she was obviously also doing fun things like she was traveling had really expensive apartments you know like she was having a good time but also she was paying for like her family and friends to also have a very good time mm. um so she's back on her family's estate in Bonnybrook Homestead, and on April 6, 1944, Rose O'Neill died of heart failure. She was buried in the family cemetery at Bonnybrook next to her mother and several, several family members. Um, and now Bonnybrook Homestead is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. That's really cool. Yeah. I wish we knew more about these quote-unquote new women, but the good thing is their work and their illustrations will live on forever in books and, of course, on bottles of Japanese mayonnaise. <laughs> Good. Uh, and those are just stories of illustrators. So thank you. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay. Kylan Granson. <laughs> From obsessed. the Colts of the Colts. Oh, okay. Also, this is a very personal matter for us. Um, <laughs> yeah, we can't like him anymore. Because the Colts ran away in the night from Baltimore, if you in know. In a Mayflower truck, you psychos. <laughs> but the photos are funny. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Anyways, we'll be right back with more stories of sports and I don't think there are sports in my in story. In your story? There might be some sports. We'll see. I don't think there are. We'll put some in there. Okay. All right. Goodbye. You know us, athletic. <laughs> Part two. Part two. New cocktail. Very different story. <laughs> very, very different well, mine story. mine was all over the place. So, like, yeah. I'm very curious as to what this is going to be like. I don't know, Artemis. <laughs> I just don't know. This cocktail is called Revenge. <laughs> and it's an ounce and a half of red wine, an ounce and a half of dry vermouth, some orange liqueur, some lime juice, two dashes of bitters, and thyme. All the time in the fucking world. (laughs) Cheers. I actually love this. I think it's really good. Wow, the bitters are great. I love it. Wow. I 
don't think I'd like it without the bitters. Mm -mm. I think the lime hits you and then the bitters hit you. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't even honestly taste that there's red wine in it, which is bananas. No, it just makes it red. Okay. Mm. Grateful. Revenge. All right. I'm about to tell you about Yuri Kachiyama. Good, because I don't know anything except that she's an activist. Yeah, she is an activist getting a lot of revenge. As I referenced earlier. This is from the L.A. Public Library presentation. Um, also, I t- looked at a couple of quotes from her memoir, passing okay. it on. And there was another book written about her called Heartbeat of Struggle. And then the big meat was me getting the layout of her life from Wikipedia. Okay. Um, and then a couple L.A. YouTube a producer videos. producer in the wild. Oh, producer is playing with the kids. He's home. What's that? Why is he wearing green? His favorite color. I know. <laughs> I like it when he wears black. I tell him that all the time. Idiot. <laughs> Producer in the wild. Here we go. Okay. Haven't seen him at home in a week. So <laughs> this is shocking. <clears throat> Let me tell you about Yuri. Yeah, please do. So first thing I need to say is that talking about Yuri, who was born Mary in her youth, is difficult. She's a very, like, there's a she's a dichotomy of a person. Okay. Uh and very interesting because I respect her a lot and I don't always agree with her. Okay. But that doesn't mean I think that everything she did was bad. Okay. I just don't agree with everything she did. Perfect. So Mary Yuriko Nakahara was born May 19th, 1921 in San Pedro, California. Uh, Her dad was a fish merchant, and her mom was a college-educated homemaker and piano teacher. She had two brothers, one older, Arthur, and a twin brother, Peter. Her and her twin brother were apparently super opposites. She was super outgoing and an extrovert, and he was very shy and, like, an introvert. When they were born, though, Japanese people in L.A. were not allowed to go to hospitals to give birth. What? So the Japanese population in the 1920s were all delivered by midwife. I feel like every season I learn something new about the way that Asian Americans were treated in the U.S. And it is shocking. It's crazy. It's crazy. What? Not yeah. allowed. Not allowed to go to the hospital. Okay. For to give birth. Her family was relatively affluent for Japanese people in California. She grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. They lived near the local high school sports field. And this was odd because most people of color lived in total, a totally different era area because they were redlined, mm-hmm. like out of the district. Mm-hmm. So Yuri went to San Pedro High School where she was the first ever female student to serve as like an SGA officer, Student Government Association. She was the first female to serve above the role of secretary. And apparently she was so popular in high school that if she had run for president, she would have won. Wow. She ran for vice president. Okay. She was the vice president of the student body. She was in the girls league for and after student court. And the Girls Athletic Association. She was a huge sports fan. Here's the sports that we promised. We did. We, you we know what? I, we didn't think sports. we would get here, and here we are. More sports. Huge sports fan. <laughs> because in 1932, the Olympics came to L.A. Oh. Not the Chicago World Fair. Just yeah. the Olympics. Yes. <laughs> Just the Olympics. Just the Olympics. 
And the Japanese track and field team was uh, designated to practice at the field near her house. And she would go and watch their practices. And her family hosted many of the Japanese Olympians for dinner. That's so cool. Yeah. So she was just around these just like Japanese superstars. She wrote for the school newspaper and was in constant cahoots with the tennis team. Um, She was a fixture for them. She rode her bike to every single game and uh, would report on the girls' scores because the local newspaper was only reporting on the boys' scores. So she volunteered to write about all of the girl matches. I love that. And one time they saw her riding her bike across town to get to the girl match, and the school bus is passing her. And the girls are like, why don't we stop and pick up Mary? They're calling her Mary at the time. Mm-hmm. Why don't we pick up Mary? The school bus stops. They pick up Mary. And from that point forward, she had a seat on the bench <laughs> at every game. I love that. Every match, I guess <laughs> you should say. After high school, she was one of the only Japanese people that was like working in central San Pedro. She got hired at a five and dime store when she had been turned down from a lot of places that wouldn't even let her do an application. Mm. The reason she did eventually get hired is she was so popular at her high school. People knew who she was. She was a fixture of the town because she was writing for not only the school newspaper, but the newspaper newspaper. Right. After she left school, she went to college. um, And there was this day when, like, teachers came outside and they thought that there was a group of kids fighting. And they got closer and found out it was just people crowded around Yuri because she had come back to visit. (laughs) She was so popular. Oh, my God. In fact, her popularity and sports dedication was to the point where she was the very first girl to get a varsity athletic letter at the high school. They weren't giving them out to girls. I feel that. She had a letter jacket. I Well, I had school letters, but I wanted a gold star on my letters. You couldn't get that? Because I did, I was like, I'm doing every activity. What do I need to get my letter? And they're like, you're still not doing enough. I was like, what the fuck? So I joined the yearbook committee just to get my extra. I was like, who's getting these gold stars? I do every sport. I'm in the play. I do the handbell choir. And I had to join the yearbook committee to get my gold star. You You should get a star for every year you play the sport. I know. I was the captain. It was ridiculous. Yeah, that's crazy. You get a star and then bars for subsequential years weird open bible that's crazy wow open bible get your standards in check <laughs> get with it they probably don't even do letters anymore no who cares mm. they're the pixar of schools they're just like <laughs> everybody's the same everybody's, the same. everybody's <laughs> rounded features everywhere her um her life was like so big in that town but it was also big at college she went and attended compton college where she studied english journalism and art and she was she's still now a fixture of san pedro like they love her she after college slash during college ran the ywca club she ran a kids girl group for hispanic girls called Mm. campfire girl she wrote this like thing that got published called my creed 22 which said among other things my creed is to never humiliate or look down on any person group creed religion nationality race employment station in life but rather to respect that was at 18 years old oh my gosh 
On Sundays, she taught, of course, Sunday school. And then she would drive all the girls home one by one in her car. And that's exactly what she was doing on the Sunday morning of December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese Empire bombed Pearl Harbor. Soon after she returned home from church, the FBI stormed in and arrested her father as a potential threat to national security. Her dad and her family was affluent for a reason. Her dad had been living in San Pedro for 30 years by the time Pearl Harbor happened, and he was a well-loved fish marketeer among not only the people in the town, but the people in boats a little bit away from the town. He sold to the U.S. Navy and to Japanese merchant ships. And beyond that, when any Japanese dignitaries came into town, they would hang out with his family because he was talk about the Olympics. A wealthy Japanese yeah. guy. The Olympics are there. He took them to local golf courses. He fed them his fish. Mm. So he was being watched by the FBI from across the street from their home. He was actually childhood friends with the Japanese ambassador. A few days before Pearl Harbor happened, he was sent a letter, and the ambassador was like, hey, I know I was supposed to come visit you, but I can't. I have to go to Washington, D.C. Um, I'll miss your Sama, which means fish, but the FBI thought it was a code. So Yuri, Mary at the time, gets home from church. Her dad had just gotten back from getting surgery. Mary opens the door. They come in and take her dad into custody to Terminal Island, and he is interrogated. He was released, so that was December 7th, uh, right? Yeah, Pearl Harbor, December 7th. He was released on January 20th, but he had just gotten surgery, so when he's released, he was too sick to even speak. Oh, my God. And he died a few weeks later. It's so sad. It's really gut-wrenching because, like, she was the most positive, like, loving outgoing motivated person she's the all-american girl yes like she was like, born and raised here yeah like she is doing everything that like american girls are supposed to do right like. and it's just like this is terrible mm. a year before pearl harbor was bombed mary had joined the women's ambulance and defense corps of america but some of the white girls were uncomfortable with her being there, so the instructors asked her not to come back. But she kept her uniform, and that was one of the things she took to the internment camps with her to show her patriotism. Also after the bombing, her twin brother enlisted and was turned away by everyone but the army, and he ended up working in military intelligence because he was fluent in Japanese. Shortly after her father died, FDR issued Executive Order 9066, which forced 120,000 people of Asian ancestry from the Pacific coast and interned them in camps across the U.S. Yuri and her mother and brothers were evacuated, um, and they're taken, and we've talked about other women who went through this, they were taken to these horse stables at the Santa Anita Assembly Center. They're sleeping in horse stables. This is the processing center. They could pack one single suitcase and leave. They had a day. She took pictures of her friends on the way out and said, I'll write to all of you. And she did. From the horse stables, because they're there for a while. It wasn't yeah. like you were in the stables for a day. Mm -hmm. 
they had to figure out where to assign you to, I say internment camps, but to prison. Um, So she kept the correspondence up, even with the San Pedro newspaper. And this is how they reported on her. Mary won't be there this year, as she has been for past several years. But she'll be rooting for us just as hard. Like, what one thing I think people forget is that the white neighbors were angry yeah. when the Japanese people were taken. For mm-hmm. a large portion of them, they were like, this person is my next-door neighbor. They're not a Japanese person. They're not right. a traitor. They're mm-hmm. not committing treason. Yeah. I mean, these are the people that they're like, we've been to their house. They've been to our house. Like, we borrow cups of sugar from each other. Like, what do you... like?" I know this person. That's well, and that's why it's hard when things are at such a big scale because you miss out on the individuality of them. That's why things like this are so shitty when you like just group a whole, you know, a whole race into traitor. Right. That is what they are labeled now. And like, it's just, it's atrocious. We don't send people to jail just in case. <laughs> it goes against the whole innocent until proven guilty mantra that apparently we're based on the premise of the constitution is that people get a chance exactly like Like, that's crazy hmm. um so eventually after a long time oh oh while okay while she's in the stables uh the horse stables which i will continue to call it and not like a detention center Mm -hmm. while she's living in horse stables for several months she gets together a group of young girls that she starts to call the Crusaders and they make it their goal to write letters to all the American servicemen and they're writing hundreds of letters to soldiers who are shipped overseas once she and her family are sent to Arkansas she kept growing the Crusaders and then there's the Junior Crusaders and a Junior Junior Crusaders and then the adult women start helping and they send tens of thousands of letters to soldiers around the world Mm. she volunteered in a makeshift uso she like when the all japanese uh corps was put together they were in mississippi and they came to visit her like before they went off to war at camp she met her husband bill kochiyama who was a japanese american soldier fighting for the united states and they wanted to get married right away and wrote to bill's dad but he was like can i please like meet her first yeah. at least like <laughs> go to war mm-hmm. do your thing and then like maybe i'll meet her and you guys can get married after the war when i mean she was there for several years oh several years and she's writing for the san pedro newspaper and she's writing letters to all these people she ran um she taught sunday school at camp she did all the things that she was supposed to do they get home and their neighbors had taken care of their house (gasps) no they paid for all the repairs they rented it out to pay the mortgage and the nakaharas are so lucky because not other families didn't get that the other families came home and lost literally everything um so she stuck around for a while waiting for bill to fight and come home from the war she got a job on the notorious beacon street which is like a the shitty street in that area and people would like throw cups of coffee at her because she was japanese um so eventually she gets on a bus when she finds out bill is home and take the bus from california to new york to meet up with bill um and they get a dingy flat in new york and bill couldn't find a job because 
ding, 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 yeah. racism. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mary actually got a job first at a coffee chain called Chock Full of Nuts <laughs> um, <laughs> because she had already had experience, you know? Yeah. The couple got married in 1946. They end up having six children and living in public housing for 12 oh years. Gosh. A family of eight in public housing. Crazy. I do. Obviously, I'm in buildings like that, public housing, a lot for my job. Eight and people. It, I've seen eight. It is not comfortable. Ideal. <laughs> no, it's not <laughs> ideal. Not comfortable at all. But the thing is, as a waitress, most of her coworkers were black. And this is where she learned about the black racial experience. She didn't have a lot of contact with black people in San Pedro, so she didn't have the words to describe what she was going through as a Japanese woman. So she was learning so much about racism. Uh So Mary and Bill move to Harlem. They get a group of friends. Every Saturday, they open their house for saloons. (laughs) (laughs) They've got some salons going on in their house. Their house actually got nicknamed Grand Central Station because everybody was there on Saturdays. They would invite speakers in to talk. It was like a big deal. So she joined Harlem activist groups and the Harlem Parenting Committee and both wanted racial equality and equality in hiring and education. And she even attended the Harlem Freedom School, which had famous activists coming in to teach lectures. And then... Yuri had been at a protest where she protested workers' rights a lot. There were 600 people that were arrested for protesting job rights. Mm -hmm. She's one of the people. She's at a protest. Then she goes to the court hearing about this protest, and she meets none other than Malcolm X. So she realizes there's a big group of black people kind of like standing around him, and she stands back. She's like, let them have their moment. And eventually they make eye contact and um, she calls out to him like to see, can I shake your hand? And this is a very famous communication. He says, what for? She says, to congratulate you. And he says, why? She said, for what you're doing for your people. And he says, well, what's that? She says, you're giving them direction. And Malcolm X, who was kind of like, quizzing her a little, looking down on her, like, why are you even here? His face totally changes. And he comes over, and he shakes her hand, and they become lifelong friends. She's, like, best friends with Malcolm X. What? So he had a huge... I know, I know, I know. He had a huge impact on her activism. There are multiple postcards that he wrote to her from when he was on his Hajj, like... Around the world, he's writing (laughs) postcards telling Yuri what's going on during his travels. There's pictures of Malcolm X, like, hugging her children, like, all hanging out. What the fuck? I know. That's insane. And at first, she doesn't agree with Malcolm X and his self-determination, whatever. Um, At the time, she was a very nonviolence, but she loved him for the fact that he spoke his truth Mm -hmm. and he had his courage and he gave people direction. Mm -hmm. She was one of the only non-black people that he invited to the group of Afro-American unity. Wow. So she is in his initial group. And on February 21st, 1965, she was present when he was assassinated in the ballroom in Washington Heights, New York City. 
she ran to the stage and the famous photo published in Life magazine has Yuri holding his head and looking down at the lifeless body of her friend and mentor. That is blowing my mind. Yeah. I Because I had no idea who this woman was. And she's literally the Jackie O of the yes. Malcolm X assassination. Yes. She's running on stage and holding his head. Oh, my Because they were very good friends. Yeah. And obviously, like, his wife, like, she had the yes. kids with her. So she's she there, was, too. She's, like, I, hiding them, holding them. <laughs> yeah. And, like, obviously, Yuri, like, would have known her. Yeah. Like, they knew each other. Oh. All of them. This is insane how the, in- involved she is. And I do want to say, if you look up this picture, it, like, look it up with care because it is a very um it's a very gruesome picture of Malcolm X kind of laying on the ground um after being shot and she's behind him just like looking down at him very sadly. Oh my gosh. Did you find it? Yeah. Yeah, it's very sad. Ugh. Um you know, she then obviously becomes involved in Asian American movements and Vietnam War protests and joins revolutionary action movements for black nationalists. I, I she she's in the black power, black nationalist ideology just because there isn't a large group of like the idea of you're a colored person in America. Right. Like she was a person of color and didn't have a group to cling to. Mm-hmm. So this was the group that she went to mm-hmm. and she slowly turned from nonviolence to self-determination and self-defense and anti-imperialism. She used her writing to help the black power movement and connect with people by writing letters. As a black nationalist, she fought imperialism and she would help any political prisoners. And I mean any, because she was a political prisoner. So in 1968, She joins the Republic of New Africa, and this is when she officially changes her name from what she calls her slave name, Mary, to her middle name, Yuri, which was her Japanese name. Mm -hmm. So she starts going by her middle name. Yuri secretly converted to Sunni Islam and began traveling to a mosque and to prisons to talk to political prisoners. In 1975, though, her oldest son took his own life following a car accident where his leg had to be amputated. So, like, Yuri has this big family, and she's such this powerful woman, but she also is, like, losing family members. But in 1977, in her most controversial move yet, she joins a group of Puerto Ricans who take over the Statue of Liberty to draw attention to the Puerto Rican independence movement. So what had happened is there was a group of Puerto Rican men who stormed the Capitol and opened gunfire. Nobody died, but five Congress people were critically injured. They were put in jail for life. So Yuri joins with this group of Puerto Rican people. They storm the Statue of Liberty. They hold it for nine hours, hanging a Puerto Rican flag out of the crown of the Statue of Liberty. because. In Yuri's mind, Puerto Rico is not America, and America is bad for taking over that area. Right. Um, and I know there are so many opinions on both sides mm-hmm. about that, but she helped to literally 
storm and hold the Statue of Liberty for nine hours. Yuri supported anybody that she thought was a victim of the U.S. government for no reason. Um, there was a man named Mumia, who was a black man sentenced to death in 1982 for murdering a police officer. She befe- befriended Ashata Shakur, uh, a black man who killed a state trooper before escaping from U.S. prison. Um, she befriended Marilyn Buck, a female poet who was imprisoned for her participation in another uh, a prison escape and a Senate bombing. And David Wong, she also helped, who was sentenced to life in prison, and she uh, funded and sustained David Wong's support committee for 14 years until he was exonerated for the murder of a fellow inmate. So he actually got off for his crimes as not doing them. And this is where things get difficult because I don't know the details of all these cases, but what I do know is that often people of color serve longer prison sentences than their white counterparts for the same crimes. So I don't think she was going in saying any of these people are innocent. Mm -hmm. I think she was going in saying, I'm going to support this person so they are treated correctly under the law. Yes. Equally. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's hard for people to see that in the scope of what happened because Mm -hmm. then, I mean, she also has big issues with 9-11 because she views America as a very imperialist country, which we are. We have our military in a mm-hmm. lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, and she can say, says, like, I can see why Osama bin Laden would have been so pissed off. But it's like also that was Al-Qaeda, not Iraq. Right. You know, so it wasn't an attack from a government. It was an attack from a terrorist group. So, Uh, yeah, and it's also not targeting anyone who's doing. It's targeting innocent civilians, right? Not the military. Oh gosh, also like what a timely thing, like because we just had the anniversary of nine eleven, and of course, like you know, I always get like really swept up into it, and like I was listening to Kelly Ripa's "Where Were You." And I watched, like, they had live with Regis and Kelly, and they're literally getting the updates, and they have no idea what's going on. And at some point, she is like, I'm sick to my stomach. Like, like it's like Regis is like, because she, Ke- Ke- Kelly is like, well, like, maybe it's like an accident. Maybe it's like a little plane that, like, the mm-hmm. something happened. I don't know. Anyways, we don't need to get into this. But it but, is crazy. Yeah. It's, it's crazy like, that it's been so long, and you are now teaching alongside someone who wasn't born yeah when that not one of your students no no my coworker was not born was not born yeah and that is so bizarre to me it means i was in 10th grade and this child was not out of the womb which is also though like i think how a lot of our family members felt during pearl harbor it's like i can't believe our grandparents yeah like you weren't there for this or like when jfk was assassinated that's our parents right our parents like these monumental moments that shift something in your molecules with my kids it's gonna be when the first group of kids is born that didn't live through covid oh with my kids it's gonna be like you don't understand covid covid was this to me that's their thing yeah like every generation has that big tragedy that shapes them and like nine eleven was ours, yeah. And then obviously, like you said, JFK, and then before that, Pearl Harbor. 
And it's like she has now, like she lived, the Pearl Harbor thing made her angry, rightfully. Yeah. And now she she also lived through 9-11. And JFK. And JFK. Like and she's like, lived, lived through every single She one lived of through these. the 70s, which is the crazy times. Yeah. <laughs> the, cra- the crazy times. Let me tell you, I, <laughs> people ask the time travel question. I would not go back to the 70s. Oh, not no. Not a chance. Just the Chicago World hell. Fair. That's where we'd go. I want to go to the Chicago World Fair. And then come right back out of it so I can yes. vote. <laughs> That's <Ooh>. all. <laughs> so beyond that, that is the really sticky period in her history that people are not cool with yeah um beyond that she worked to get a day of remembrance for the day the executive order was signed uh to put japanese people in concentration camps um and that went through she worked to get reparations for the japanese people and asian people who were put in concentration camps and that went through President Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act uh, for these Japanese people. In the later years, she opposed the profiling and bigotry that was coming at Muslim Americans and South Asian people in the U.S. Yuri's daughter, another one, actually got hit by a car and fatally killed. Yeah, another kid. So she had six, and now two had passed away. Then in 1993, her husband Bill passes away. And... I don't know. She did a lot of joining activist groups, whether it was labor parties or communist parties or black unity groups. She was joining the groups that aren't uh, easy to talk about for white, wealthy Americans. The ones that we don't, you know, quote, we, the the royal we, don't want them in. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. it's because you're working against us. Mm -hmm. But beyond all that, she was teaching English to immigrant students. She was volunteering at soup kitchens and homeless shelters in New York. She was a mentor to the young Asian nationalists, and she befriended Angela Davis. And there's, like, cute pictures of her and Angela Davis and her kids. In 2001, there was a television series called Cool Women where – I don't want to say that. Okay. I'm going to skip ahead because we okay. talked about 9-11 already, so Ooh, I'm, like, okay. skipping 2001 stuff. Okay. In 2004, she published a memoir, Passing It On, she died June 1st, 2014, at 93 years old in Berkeley, California. She's a woman of complicated political beliefs, but interesting political beliefs. Mm-hmm. And she had controversial views that combined racism and racial integration and then also separation. Yuri's speeches were published in a book, and there was a documentary about her and Angela Davis in 2010 called Mountains That Take Wing. She is listed as one of the 1,000 women collectively nominated to win a Nobel Peace Prize in oh, 2005. Wow. So there's a big Nobel Peace Prize for just 1,000 women who worked really hard. She got an honorary doctorate from California State University. She was featured as letter Y in the book Rad American Women A to Z, which I have. <laughs> Her 95th birthday was commemorated with a Google Doodle which got a lot of criticism mm. because people were angry, specifically soldiers who went to fight after 9-11 yeah. felt like she didn't respect their sacrifice. Currently, Marion Warren is producing a documentary film called What Did You Do in the War, Mama? And it is about Kochiyama's Crusaders, and it is in production right now, where she is interviewing the Japanese-American young girls who were in the concentration camps with Yuri being her Crusaders. 
She's seen as a hero for human rights, but also people want to remove her from that because of her activism and her black nationalist and her anti-imperialist against the United States. Right now, there's a mural of her and Malcolm X together in Harlem. Uh, he's a few years younger than her, but they share the same birthday. And the mural huh. has both of them, and it has their human rights and their black power. And it, they touched it up on her what would have been her 100th birthday. Wow. And that's the story of Yuri Kachiyama. That was so much and so interesting. I can't. Believe I've never heard of her before. I know. And like when you see the picture, the very famous picture of her, she's very recognizable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think it's a hard story because I, I do have some sticking points. Like there are some yeah. things that I don't agree with, but I see why she did it. Yes. And I think that's well, what's important. And also when you're going up against such huge power structures, it's like I do feel like sometimes it's like you have to go a little bit far in order to come back to like the reasonable point you know what i'm saying it's like we need it doesn't feel good but you also need somebody who's like pushing it to the nth push the envelope pushing the envelope you know and uh, i don't know and because those people are the ones that are starting the more difficult conversations it's like oh is this the same or is it not like are we like you know what I'm, i don't mm-hmm. know there's a lot going on but we have to talk about all these women together in a little segment we like to call just the two of us or three or three um, just the three of us so this is very interesting because this is a hard one. we're starting our story in the 1920s yuri's born in the 1920s and that is when eleanor and rose are getting like their boost like that is when they are at the height of their careers so we're talking about very different experiences because as white women the world is opening up it's like we've made it baby like we're getting paid for our work we can go to college incredible we're We're writing advertisements new women the new women and japanese women are going to be experiencing like they already are being discriminated against and now it's like it's only going to ramp up from here. It's getting worse. Yeah. Um, and I just feel like kind of when their story is ending, hers is really getting started. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, obviously she has a very different experience in, in America. Right. <laughs> These women did. She does. And I, one thing I wrote down is when you said they, they came together as this group of the new woman. Yes. That they wanted radical change. Mm-hmm. But I don't think what they did was change radically. No. I think they took the breadcrumbs that were given to them by white men that yes. they were allowed to take uh-huh. and they succeeded. Yes. Yuri did not have that opportunity. And nor did the black Americans mm-hmm. or the other Asian Americans or the Hispanic people. They weren't given the breadcrumbs and the coattails. And I'm not saying it was easy for white women. No. I'm just saying that their skin color was never a factor in their success. Right. And because we're talking about like cultural shifts and big political shifts. Right. And like obviously they're very important, both of them, and they're also tied together, you know. And I think it's interesting that, like you said, both of them, jo- like all of them joined groups to kind of make bigger things happen than themselves. But for Eleanor and Rose, they were more concerned with like 
how do I make life better for like myself and women like me? And I feel like Yuri was looking at the world and she was like, Oh, I am. I don't want to make life better for just like specifically Japanese women. She's like, I want to make life better for all minorities because like I am now realizing that like we are in a much bigger boat than I thought we were. So like, this is not just a me problem. This is a really big fucking political, cultural problem. I think it's also how are you going to tell the stories? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think these women were telling cultural stories, and I think that Yuri was writing letters. I think these women were drawing pictures to go along with the stories that had already been written or writing comics or creating advertisements. And I don't know. I. I think that Eleanor and uh, Rose wrote the story of the women's experience. That's mm-hmm. what we talked about. And like women like them, th- right? Their female experience. And I think Yuri had a very different female experience. Mm-hmm. And so much so that she was able to understand different female experiences. Mm-hmm. I think the reason 9 11 got to her so bad was that the last time the U.S. was attacked, she was thrown in prison. Yeah, yeah. So imagine now you're 70 and the U.S. gets attacked again and now Muslim people are being discriminated against. Everything's a problem. Like, mosques are getting attacked. Mosques are being bombed. Like, I can imagine that that brings back so much trauma because she's thinking, what are the Muslim children doing right now? Right. Are they okay? Because she was not okay no. as a young Japanese girl. She so wasn't. She's like, I know exactly how that feels to be an enemy of the United States in an instant when all of your life you have been an all-American girl. A U.S. citizen. And now it's like. I'm a bad girl. I'm exactly. wrong. I, and I think that's why she got so up in arms. Um, but I, th- I think about the pictures that. Um, both Eleanor and Rose drew, and they don't sing anger to me. Mm-hmm. Like they they sing. Here's the story I need to tell. And not necessarily that it's like they had a cushy life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I just I can't quite grapple with their struggle in the same way. Yeah. Well, because it is different. They're fighting for their right to do something fun and exciting and interesting and Yori is fighting for her and other people's right to merely exist right yeah and I think that's what we're kind of grappling with you know and I think it's interesting because Yori started off in this world in kind of their position she's very popular in school she's like everything's good everything's fine but it also it doesn't matter at some point how popular you are because you're still subject to some bullshit. Right. And like Yuri obviously was literally thrown in prison and like ultimately like Eleanor and Rose were just like discriminated against. Like they had like faced sexism in their employment opportunities, but like that is nothing near as close to being put in an internment camp in an internment camp. And I think that like, The thing that binds them all together is, like, no matter how, I don't know, superfluous or whatever, like, no matter how, like, silly it might seem, like, all these women wanted respect. Yeah. Yuri wanted respect for herself. She wanted respect for other people. 
And that's what Eleanor and Rose wanted to. They're like, I want to be paid the same as the male illustrators. And Yuri was saying, I want, no matter what the color of their skin is, I want them to be treated the same in the justice system, you know? And like, we need to be focusing on all of these things because you're not getting paid the same. You definitely aren't getting treated the same in the justice system. So they are all connected. And I think that's the important part to take away from the combining of this, like seeming like happy, fun story about flying cherubs and Mm -hmm. gorgeous illustrations and like hard political work and assassinations is we need to keep our minds set on respect for people as they are. Right. These women, they are middle to upper class white women and like, they have some semblance of respect, but they could have more. Yuri and the people that she is fighting with, they are on a lower level of respect, and they also deserve more. Well, let's I, get everybody to the same level. I think like, it's important that, too, that every building block matters. Yes. Like, I think a lot about that mm-hmm. Audrey Lord quote that was like, I am not free while any woman's in shackles, yes. regardless of who she is, or like whatever right. the quote is. Like, they don't look at my own. Right. Like, it doesn't matter that shackles she's are not different me. than my own. Yeah. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter if her shackles are different than mine. Yeah. Like I I'm not free if she's not free. Yeah. And I think that all three of these women would have said that. Yeah. Because it yes, we're all building from different places. That is the beauty of like intersectionality. Yes. All three of them were dealing with being a woman. Uh-huh. Yuri is dealing with being a Japanese woman. Yes. You know, so in a very particular time in history. Right. So like there is this separation, but also mm-hmm. they have this one thing that they're fighting for together. Yeah. And they had really big fucking things like the Great Depression and World War II and like these really big events. Like we were just talking about the events that make us and especially Yuri lived through <laughs> the biggest events of the 21st century. Yeah, she did. And that is not something to be sneezed at. Yeah, you can't take it lightly. So. We did it. Well, we did it. Time to toast. Time to toast. (laughs) Who would you like to toast this evening? I want to toast extreme believers. Yeah. You said it earlier, and it, it was part of my toast, actually. Like, I think it's important to have people who are really apathetic. And I think it's mm-hmm. important to have people who are really extreme in their beliefs because yeah. it balances the rest of us out. For yeah. somebody to be like, I think my Apple phone is always listening to me and I am boycotting Apple. Great. That gets me more protection. Yeah. And somebody mm-hmm. to be like, I don't care. It gets yeah. me more rights. <laughs> like, yeah. I like, I love that the two groups exist because it allows me to be a mediocre person. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, so. I know exactly what you mean. Cheers to people on both extremes. Thank you for making me not do it. So funny you say that because my personal journal entry today was all about how I was like, I'm just in the middle of fucking everything. So normie. I'm just like very in the middle. Anyways. It's beautiful. um, Thank you, everybody who exists around us. Um, I'm going to toast. The women who create new eras. I loved learning about how these women were a part of the new woman era. I think it's so fucking cool to have, like, to be a part of something that has this, like, I don't know, label. And it really stood for something. And it got women bicycles and pants. So cheers. Cheers. (laughs) All right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? I love a high-waisted pant. Oh, 
I just bought a new pair. And I, there are certain places that do really good ones. Old Navy has some cute ones oh, right now. Agreed. And I just think they're great. And I think that everybody should invest in some because it like just tucks in. It doesn't give you the muffin top that you hate so much. I, I mean, you know me. I've been a fan of the high-waisted pant for quite right. some I'm time. Right. I'm only in on it in like two and a half years. Um, so, and I will say it's hard because I just bought a new pair from Target. I feel like they've finally learned their lesson about pocket placement. Good. Because pocket placement on high-waisted pants is very, very important. Because mm. Target, for a long time, their pockets are important, but they were just placing them incorrectly, so then they buckled out. Weird. Not good. Um, but yes, I would also, I'll double, I'll yeah, double down. Double on down on the high-waisted pant promo. What I do you got? Pants. What do you got? I'm going to recommend Lessons in Chemistry. Mm. I just finished it this week. Didn't you love it? I loved it. Katie, it blew me away. And it's great because it's just now being turned into an Apple TV series. I know, series I know, I know, I know. With Brie Larson. And I didn't even know that Brie Larson was the person to play yeah. um, Elizabeth Zott until I saw her. And I was like, that is the person to play Elizabeth Zott. I love that. Every chapter I got into in Lessons in Chemistry, I was like, oh, you're making that other point that's very important to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're making that other point that's very – like, they did it without hitting you over the head, but also being very clear, this is a feminist novel. And I also kind of like that sometimes during the book, you're like, Elizabeth, just chill out for a second. Shut like, up. Shut up. Like, <laughs> you're being crazy. Stop calling salt sodium chloride. Right. Like, yes. Yes. But I love it. Like, but that is the point is like, like we were talking about the episode. Sometimes you need the women to go too far to like, you know, brain it, like to find that middle. Steal that the fucking beakers, about. girl. Steal and the beakers. I love the character of Elizabeth. Sott. I think she's also like a really good rep. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm not a part of this community, so I don't know. But like, I feel like she had that great, like, just like atypical mindset that a lot of people have of like, well, no, but like, this is correct. And like, that's what I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. Like, with, without regard to social norms, you right. know, which again, you need. So I thought the book was great. I love it. I um, love it. So yeah, Lessons in Chemistry, the book, and hopefully the new series will do it justice. We'll, Better. We'll see. We will see. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us. This is such a great second episode of season 16, all requests edition. If you want to hang out with us a little bit more, join us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. You can buy us a drink. You can hang out with other like-minded people and very different-minded people. And we just have a really fun time and you get to know us a little bit more personally, sometimes too personally. Oh my God. It gets wild. (laughs) (laughs) So join us there. We love you. And we want you to never forget that well-behaved women don't overthrow national monuments. (laughs) No. And they rarely make history. Goodbye.
You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.